Chapter Four of Sir Nigel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Four, How the Summoner Came to the Manor House of Tilford. By the date of this chronicle, the ascetic sternness of the old Norman castles had been humanized and refined, so that the new dwellings of the nobility if less imposing in appearance, were much more comfortable as places of residence. A gentle race had built their houses rather for peace than for war. He who compares the savage bareness of Pevensey or Guildford with the piled grandeur of Bodmin or Windsor cannot fail to understand the change in manners which they represent. The earlier castles had a set purpose, for they were built that the invaders might hold down the country, but when the conquest was once firmly established, a castle had lost its meaning save as a refuge from justice or as a centre for civil strife. On the marches of Wales and of Scotland the castle might continue to be a bulwark to the kingdom, and there still grew and flourished. But in all other places they were rather a menace to the king's majesty, and as such were discouraged and destroyed. By the reign of the third Edward the greater part of the old fighting castles had been converted into dwelling-houses, or had been ruined in the civil wars and left where their grim grey bones are still littered upon the brows of our hills. The new buildings were either great country houses, capable of defence, but mainly residential, or they were manor-houses with no military significance at all. Such was the Tilford manor-house, where the last survivors of the old and magnificent house of Loring still struggled hard to keep a footing, and to hold off the monks and the lawyers from the few acres which were left to them. The mansion was a two-storied one, framed in heavy beams of wood, the interstices filled with rude blocks of stone. An outside staircase led up to several sleeping-rooms above. Below there were only two apartments, the smaller of which was the bower of the aged Lady Ermentrude. The other was the hall, a very large room which served as the living-room of the family, and as the common dining-room of themselves and of their little group of servants and retainers. The dwellings of these servants, the kitchens, the offices, and the stables were all represented by a row of penthouses and sheds behind the main building. Here lived Charles the Page, Peter the Old Falconer, Red Swire, who had followed Nigel's grandfather to the Scottish Wars, Weathercoat the Broken Minstrel, John the Cook, and other survivors of more prosperous days, who still clung to the old house as the barnacles to some wrecked and stranded vessel. One evening, about a week after the breaking of the yellow horse, Nigel and his grandmother sat on either side of the large empty fireplace in this spacious apartment. The supper had been removed, and so had the trestle-tables upon which it had been served, so that the room seemed bare and empty. The stone floor was strewed with a thick layer of green rushes, which was swept out every Saturday and carried with it all the dirt and debris of the week. Several dogs were now crouched among these rushes, gnawing and cracking the bones which had been thrown from the table. A long wooden buffet, loaded with plates and dishes, filled one end of the room, but there was little other furniture save some benches against the walls, two dorseret chairs, one small table littered with chessmen, and a great iron coffer. In one corner was a high wickerwork stand, and on it two stately falcons were perched, silent and motionless save for an occasional twinkle in their fierce yellow eyes. 
but if the actual fittings of the room would have appeared scanty to one who had lived in a more luxurious age, he would have been surprised on looking up to see the multitude of objects which were suspended above his head. Over the fireplace were the coats of arms of a number of houses allied by blood or by marriage to the Lorings. The two cresset lights which flared upon each side gleamed upon the blue lion of the Percys, the red birds of de Valence, the black engrailed cross of de Moon, the silver star of de Vere, and the ruddy bars of Fitzalan, all grouped round the famous red roses on the silver shield, which the Lorings had borne to glory upon many a bloody field. Then from side to side the room was spanned by heavy oaken beams, from which a great number of objects were hanging. There were male shirts of obsolete pattern, several shields, one or two rusted and battered helmets, bow-staves, lances, otter-spears, harness, fishing-rods, and other implements of war or of the chase, while higher still, amid the black shadows of the peak roof, could be seen rows of hams, flitches of bacon, salted geese, and those other forms of preserved meat, which played so great a part in the housekeeping of the Middle Ages. Dame Ermintrude Loring, daughter, wife, and mother of warriors, was herself a formidable figure. Tall and gaunt, with hard, cracky features, and intolerant dark eyes, even her snow-white hair and stooping back could not entirely remove the sense of fear which she inspired in those around her. Her thoughts and memories went back to harsher times, and she looked upon the England around her as a degenerate and effeminate land, which had fallen away from the old standard of knightly courtesy and valour. The rising power of the people, the growing wealth of the church, the increasing luxury in life and manners, and the gentler tone of the age were all equally abhorrent to her, so that the dread of her fierce face, and even of the heavy oak staff with which she was supported her failing limbs, was widespread through all the country round. Yet if she was feared, she was also respected. For in days when books were few and readers scarce, a long memory and a ready tongue were of the more value. And where, save from Dame Ermintrude, could the young, unlettered squires of Surrey and Hampshire hear of their grandfathers and their battles? or learn that lore of heraldry and chivalry which she handed down from a ruder but a more martial age. Poor as she was, there was no one in Surrey whose guidance would be more readily sought upon a question of precedence or of conduct than the Dame Ermintrude Loring. She sat now with bowed back by the empty fireplace, and looked across at Nigel with all the harsh lines of her old ruddled face softening into love and pride. The young squire, was busy cutting bird-bolts for his crossbow, and whistling softly as he worked. Suddenly he looked up, and caught the dark eyes which were fixed upon him. He leaned forward and patted the bony hand. "'What hath pleased you, dear dame? I read pleasure in your eyes.' "'I have heard to-day, Nigel, how you came to win that great war-horse which stamps in our stable.' "'Nay, dame, I had told you that the monks had given it to me.' "'You said so, fair son, but never a word more.' Yet the horse which you brought home was a different horse, I wot, to that which was given you. Why did you not tell me? I should think it shame to talk of such a thing. Mm, so would your father before you, and his father no less. They would sit silent among the knights when the wine went round, and listen to every man's deeds. But if, perchance, there was any one who spoke louder than the rest, and seemed to be eager for honour, then afterwards your father would pluck him softly by the sleeve, and whisper in his ear to learn if there was any small vow of which he could relieve him, 
or if he would deign to perform some noble deed of arms upon his person. And if the man were a braggart, and would go no further, your father would be silent, and none would know it. But if he bore himself well, your father would spread his fame far and wide, but never make mention of himself. Nigel looked at the old woman with shining eyes. I love to hear you speak of him, said he. I pray you, tell me once more of the manner of his death. He died as he had lived, a very courtly gentleman. It was at the great sea battle on the Norman coast, and your father was in command of the afterguard in the king's own ship. Now the French had taken a great English ship the year before, when they had come over and held the narrow seas and burned the town of Southampton. This ship was the Christopher, and they placed it in the front of their battle, but the English closed upon it and stormed over its side, and slew all who were upon it. But your father, and Sir Loredan of Genoa, who commanded the Christopher, fought upon the high poop, so that all the fleet stopped to watch it, and the king himself cried aloud at the sight, for Sir Loredan was a famous man-at-arms, and bore himself very stoutly that day, and many a knight envied your father that he should have chanced upon so excellent a person. But your father bore him back, and struck him such a blow with a mace, that he turned the helmet half round on his head so that he could no longer see through the eye-holes. And Sir Loredan threw down his sword, and gave himself to ransom. But your father took him by the helmet, and twisted it until he had it straight upon his head. Then, when he could see once again, he handed him his sword, and prayed him that he would rest himself, and then continue, for it was great profit and joy to see any gentleman carry himself so well. So they sat together, and rested by the rail of the poop and even as they raised their hands again, your father was struck by a stone from a mangonel, and so died. "'And this Sir Loredan,' cried Nigel, "'he died also, I understand. I fear that he was slain by the archers, for they loved your father, and they do not see things with our eyes.' "'It was a pity,' said Nigel, "'for it is clear that he was a good knight, and bore himself very bravely. Time was, when I was young, when commoners dared not have laid their grimy hands upon such a man. Men of gentle blood and coat-armour made war upon each other, and the others, spearmen or archers, could scramble amongst themselves. But now all are of a level, and only here and there are one like yourself, fair son, who reminds me of the men who are gone." Nigel leaned forward and took her hands in his. "'What I am you have made me,' said he. "'It is true, Nigel. I have indeed watched over you as the gardener watches his most precious blossom. For in you alone are all the hopes of our ancient house, and soon, very soon, you will be alone. Nay, dear lady, say not that. I am very old, Nigel, and I feel the shadow closing in upon me. My heart yearns to go, for all whom I have known and loved have gone before me. And you, it will be a blessed day for you, since I have held you back from that world into which your brave spirit longs to plunge. Nay, nay, I have been happy here with you at Tilford. We are very poor, Nigel. I do not know where we may find the money to fit you for the wars. Yet we have good friends. There is Sir John Chandos, who has won such credit in the French wars, and who rides ever by the King's bridle-arm. He was your father's friend, and they were squires together. If I sent you to court with a message to him, he would do what he could." Nigel's face flushed. "'Nay, Dame Ermintrude, 
I must find my own gear, even as I have found my own horse, for I had rather ride into battle in this tunic than owe my suit to another. I, I feared you would say so, Nigel, but indeed I know not how else we may get the money, said the old woman sadly. It was different in the days of my father. I can remember that a suit of mail was but a small matter in those days, for in every English town such things could be made. But year by year, since men have come to take more care of their bodies, there have been added a plate of proof here and there, and a cunning joint, and all must be from Toledo or Milan, so that a knight must have much metal in his purse ere he puts any on his limbs. Nigel looked up wistfully at the old armour which was slung on the beams. "'The ash spear is good,' said he, "'and so is the oaken shield with facings of steel.' Sir Roger Fitzalan handled them, and said that he had never seen them better. But the armour— Lady Ermentrude shook her old head and laughed. You have your father's great soul, Nigel, but you have not his mighty breadth of shoulder and length of limb. There was not in all the king's host a taller or stronger man. His harness would be little use to you. No, fair son, I read you that when the time comes— you sell this crumbling house and the few acres which are still left, and go forth to the wars in the hope that with your own right hand you will plant the fortunes of a new house of Loring. A shadow of anger passed over Nigel's fresh young face. I know not if we may hold off these monks and their lawyers much longer. This very day there came a man from Guildford, with claims from the abbey extending back before my father's death. Where are they, fair son? They are flapping on the furze bushes of Hankley for I sent his papers and parchments downwind as fast as ever falcon flew. Nay, you are mad to do that, Nigel. And the man, where is he? Red Swire and old George the archer threw him in the Thursley bog. Alas! I fear me such things cannot be done in these days, though my father or my husband would have sent the rascal back to Guildford without his ears. But the church and the law are too strong now for us who are of gentler blood. Trouble will come of it, Nigel for the abbot of Waverley is not one who will hold back the shield of the church from those who are her servants. The abbot would not hurt us. It is that lean grey wolf of a sacrist who hungers for our land. Let him do his worst. I fear him not. He has such an engine at his back, Nigel, that even the bravest must fear him. The ban which blasts a man's soul is in the keeping of his church, and what have we to place against it? I pray you to speak him fair, Nigel. "'Nay, dear lady, it is both my duty and my pleasure to do what you bid me, but I would die ere I ask as a favour that which we can claim as a right. Never can I cast my eyes from yonder window that I do not see the swelling downlands and the rich meadows, glade and dingle, copse and wood, which have been ours since Norman William gave them to that Loring who bore his shield at Senlac. Now, by trick and fraud, they have passed away from us.' and many a franklin is a richer man than I. But never shall it be said that I saved the rest by bending my neck to their yoke. Let them do their worst, and let me endure it or fight it as best I may." The old lady sighed and shook her head. "'You speak as a loring should, and yet I fear that some great trouble will befall us. But let us talk no more of such matters, since we cannot mend them. Where is your citole, Nigel? Will you not play and sing to me?' The gentleman of those days could scarce read and write, but he spoke in two languages, played at least one musical instrument as a matter of course, and possessed a number of other accomplishments, 
from the imping of hawks' feathers to the mystery of venery, with knowledge of every beast and bird, its time of grace, and when it was seasonable. As far as physical feats went, to vault barebacked upon a horse, to hit a running hare with a crossbow bolt, or to climb the angle of a castle courtyard, were feats which had come by nature to the young squire. But it was very different with music, which had called for many a weary hour of irksome work. Now, at last, he could master the strings, but both his ear and his voice were not of the best, so that it was well, perhaps, that there was so small and so unprejudiced an audience to the Norman-French chanson, which he sang in a high, reedy voice, with great earnestness of feeling, but with many a slip and quaver, waving his yellow head in cadence to the music. A sword, a sword, ah, give me a sword, for the world is all to win. Though the way be hard and the door be barred, the strong man enters in. If chance and fate still hold the gate, give me the iron key. And turret high my plume shall fly, or you may weep for me. A horse, a horse, ah, give me a horse, to bear me out afar, where blackest need and grimmest deed and sweetest perils are. Hold thou my ways from glutted days, where poisoned leisure lies and point the path of tears and wrath which mounts to high emprise. A heart, a heart, ah, give me a heart to rise to circumstance, serene and high and bold to try the hazard of the chance, with strength to wait, but fixed as fate, to plan and dare and do, the peer of all and only thrall, sweet lady, mine to you. It may have been that the sentiment went for more than the music, or it may have been that the nicety of her own ears had been dulled by age, but old Dame Ermintrude clapped her lean hands together and cried out in shrill applause. "'Weathercote has indeed an apt pupil,' she said. "'I pray you that you will sing again.' "'Nay, dear dame, it is turn and turn betwixt you and me. I beg that you will recite a romance, you who know them all. For all the years that I have listened I have never yet come to the end of them.' and I dare swear that there are more in your head than in all the great books which they showed me at Guildford Castle. I would fain hear Dune of Mayence, or the Song of Roland, or Sir Isenbras. So the old dame broke into a long poem, slow and dull in the inception, but quickening as the interest grew, until, with darting hands and glowing face, she poured forth the verses which told of the emptiness of sordid life, the beauty of heroic death, and the high sacredness of love and the bondage of honour. Nigel, with set, still features and brooding eyes, drank in the fiery words, until at last they died upon the old woman's lips, and she sank back weary in her chair. Nigel stooped over her and kissed her brow. "'Your words will ever be as a star upon my path,' said he. Then carrying over the small table and the chessmen, he proposed that they should play their usual game before they sought their rooms for the night. But a sudden and rude interruption broke in upon their gentle contest. A dog pricked its ears and barked. The others ran growling to the door. And then there came a sharp clash of arms, a dull heavy blow as from a club or sword pommel, and a deep voice from without summoned them to open in the king's name. The old dame and Nigel had both sprung to their feet, the table overturned and their chessmen scattered among the rushes. Nigel's hand had sought his crossbow, but the Lady Ermintrude grasped his arm. "'Nay, fair son, have you not heard that it is in the King's name?' said she. "'Down, Talbot! Down, Bayard!' 
opened the door, and let his messenger in. Nigel undid the bolt, and the heavy wooden door swung outwards upon its hinges. The light from the flaring cressets beat upon steel caps and fierce bearded faces, with the glimmer of drawn swords and the yellow gleam of bow-staves. A dozen armed archers forced their way into the room. At their head were the gaunt sacrist of Waverley, and a stout elderly man, clad in a red velvet doublet, and breeches much stained and mottled with mud and clay. He bore a great sheet of parchment, with a fringe of dangling seals, which he held aloft as he entered. "'I call on Nigel Loring,' he cried. "'I, the officer of the King's Law, and the lay summoner of Waverley, call upon the man named Nigel Loring.' "'I am he.' "'Yes, it is he,' cried the sacrist. "'Archers, do as you were ordered.' In an instant the band threw themselves upon him like the hounds on a stag. Desperately Nigel strove to gain his sword, which lay upon the iron coffer. With the convulsive strength which comes from the spirit rather than from the body, he bore them all in that direction, but the sacrist snatched the weapon from its place, and the rest dragged the writhing squire to the ground, and swathed him in a cord. "'Hold him fast, good archers. Keep a stout grip on him,' cried the summoner. "'I pray you, one of you, prick off those great dogs which snarl at my heels. Stand off, I say, in the name of the king.' What kin come betwixt me and these creatures who have as little regard for the law as their master? One of the archers kicked off the faithful dogs. But there were others of the household who were equally ready to show their teeth in defence of the old house of Loring. From the door which led to their quarters there emerged the pitiful muster of Nigel's threadbare retainers. There was a time when ten knights, forty men-at-arms, and two hundred archers would march behind the scarlet roses. Now at this last rally, when the young head of the house lay bound in his own hall, there mustered at his call the page Charles with a cudgel, John the cook with his longest spit, Red Swire the aged man-at-arms with a formidable axe swung over his snowy head, and Weathercoat the minstrel with a boar-spear. Yet this motley array was fired with the spirit of the house, and under the lead of the fierce old soldier they would certainly have flung themselves upon the ready swords of the archers had the Lady Ermintrude not swept between them. "'Stand back, Swire!' she cried. "'Back, Weathercoat! Charles! Put a leash on Talbot, and hold Bayard back." Her black eyes blazed upon the invaders, until they shrank from the baleful gaze. "'Who are you, you rascal robbers, who dare to misuse the King's name, and to lay hands upon one whose smallest drop of blood has more worth than all your thrall and catliff bodies?' "'Not so fast, dame, not so fast, I pray you,' cried the stout summoner, whose face had resumed its natural colour, now that he had a woman to deal with. There is a law of England, mark you, and there are those who serve and uphold it, who are true men and the king's own lieges. Such a one am I. Then again, there are those who take such as me, and transfer, carry, or convey us into a bog or morass. Such a one is this graceless old man with the axe, whom I have seen already this day. There are also those who tear, destroy, or scatter the papers of the law, of which this young man is the chief. Therefore I would read you, dame, not to rail against us, but to understand that we are the king's men, on the king's own service. What then is your errand in this house at this hour of night? The summoner cleared his throat pompously, and turning his parchment to the light of the cressets, he read out a long document in Norman French, couched in such a style and such a language that the most involved and foolish of our forms was simplicity itself compared to those by which the men of the long gown made a mystery of that of which all things on earth should be the plainest and the most simple. 
Despair fell cold upon Nigel's heart, and blanched the face of the old dame as they listened to the dread catalogue of claims and suits and issues, questions of peccary and turbary, of houseboat and fireboat, which ended by a demand for all the lands, hereditaments, tenements, messuages, and curtilages, which made up their worldly all. Nigel, still bound, had been placed with his back against the iron coffer, whence he heard with dry lips and moist brow this doom of his house. Now he broke in on the recital with a vehemence which made the summoner jump. "'You shall rue what you have done this night,' he cried. "'Poor as we are, we have our friends who will not see us wronged, and I will plead my cause before the King's own Majesty at Windsor, that he who saw the father die may know what things are done in his royal name against the son.' but these matters are to be settled in course of law in the king's courts, and how will you excuse yourself for this assault upon my house and person? Nay, that is another matter, said the sacrist. The question of debt may indeed be an affair of a civil court, but it is a crime against the law, and an act of the devil which comes within the jurisdiction of the abbey court of Waverley, when you dare to lay hands upon the summoner or his papers. Indeed, he speaks the truth, cried the official. I know no blacker sin. Therefore, said the stern monk, it is the order of the Holy Father Abbot that you sleep this night in the abbey cell, and that to-morrow you be brought before him in the court, held in the chapter-house, so that you receive the fit punishment for this and the many other violent and forward deeds which you have wrought upon the servants of the Holy Church. Enough is now said, worthy Master Summoner. Archers, remove your prisoner. As Nigel was lifted up by four stout archers, the dame Ermintrude would have rushed to his aid, but the sacrist thrust her back. Stand off, proud woman. Let the law take its course, and learn to humble your heart before the power of holy church. Has your life not taught its lesson, you whose horn was exalted amongst the highest, and will soon not have a roof above your grey hairs? Stand back, I say, lest I lay a curse upon you. The old dame flamed suddenly into white wrath as she stood before the angry monk. "'Listen to me while I lay a curse upon you and yours,' she cried as she raised her shriveled arms and blighted him with her flashing eyes. "'As you have done to the house of Loring, so may God do to you until your power is swept from the land of England, and of your great abbey of Waverley there is nothing left but a pile of grey stones in a green meadow. I see it, I see it, with my old eyes I see it. From scullion to abbot and from cellar to tower may Waverley and all within it droop and wither from this night on. The monk, hard as he was, quailed before this frantic figure and the bitter burning words. Already the summoner and the archers with their prisoner were clear of the house. He turned, and with a clang he shut the heavy door behind him. End of chapter 4